Good evening. President Biden announces mandatory vaccinations and other uh, requirements uh, now that uh, there is a rise in COVID cases across the nation. The United States Senate votes for a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. But is it real? And why is New York City's housing court blocking the use of apps to make it easier to file complaints about bad conditions in your apartment? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, July 29th, 2021. President Joe Biden today announced sweeping new pandemic requirements for millions of federal workers as he denounced an American tragedy a rising yet preventable deaths among unvaccinated U.S. employees and others. So today, I'm calling on all states and local governments to use funding they have received, including from the American Rescue Plan, to give $100 to anyone who gets fully vaccinated. I know the pain people who get vaccinated might sound unfair to folks who've gotten vaccinated already. But here's the deal. If incentives help us beat this virus... I believe we should use them. Just this week, we took an important step to protect our veterans. Like many civilian hospital systems are doing, the Department of Veterans Affairs will now require COVID-19 vaccines for doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers who provide medical care for our veterans. Since many vaccinations are required for active duty military today, I'm asking the Defense Department to look into how and when they will add COVID-19 to the list of vaccinations our armed forces must get. Every federal government employee will be asked to attest to their vaccination status. Anyone who does not attest or is not vaccinated will be required to mask no matter where they work, Test one or two times a week to see if they've they've acquired COVID. Socially distance and generally will not be allowed to travel for work. Today, directing my administration to take steps to apply similar standards to all federal contractors. If you want to do business with the federal government, get your workers vaccinated. And that is President Biden earlier today. Biden's move for the federal government by the uh, nation's largest employer, by far the nation's largest employer and federal contractors, comes in the face of surging coronavirus rates driven by pockets of vaccine resistance and the more infectious Delta variant. The government directly employs about four million people, but Biden's action could affect many more when federal contractors are factored in. As many as 7 million more employees could potentially be affected. About 60 percent of American adults have been fully vaccinated. Biden had set a July 4th goal to get at least one shot in 70 percent of adults and is still not quite there. The latest figure is 69.3 percent. And the United States is one step closer to a massive, much needed infrastructure spending package. The Senate voted yesterday to advance a bipartisan bill, which includes $550 billion in new federal funding for infrastructure. The bill will now enter a process of debates and amendments and would inject funding into transportation, utilities and broadband spending. Senators voted to advance the package 67 to 32, with 17 Republicans joining all 48 Senate Democrats and two independents who caucus with the Democrats in favor of the bill. The measure passed last night. On this vote, the yeas are 67, the nays are 32, three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn having voting, voted in the affirmative. The motion upon reconsideration is agreed to. 
The $550 billion figure is far lower than the multi-trillion American jobs plan championed by President Joe Biden, but it contains measures to support electric vehicles, clean drinking water, and bring high-speed Internet to millions of Americans, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The Senate voted by a substantial margin to move forward with a debate on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I want to commend the group of senators who worked with President Biden to reach a deal. The agreement will ultimately dedicate over a trillion dollars to strengthening virtually every major category of our country's physical infrastructure. But now is not the time to rest on our laurels. Now is the time to press forward, to cement these gains and build on them. In a separate news conference, moderates from both parties crowed about the bipartisan deal, with Utah Senator Mitt Romney telling a joke about liberal former Senator Ted Kennedy. Some time ago, Ted Kennedy made a line at a celebration like this that I'll use. He said something of this nature. He said, you know, when, uh, I'll apply it in this way. When Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell vote for the same bill, you know, one thing, one of them hasn't read it. But in fact, but in fact, both of them have. Uh, both of them have been very involved. Uh, we've let them know what's going on in this process. We are familiar with what, what's going on here. Our colleagues have. And having worked together has been a great thrill for me. And so I'm delighted that we've made so much progress and look forward to, to this becoming law. Because it's one more example, and there are plenty of them here, where people put aside the politics to actually get the work of the people done. That's Mitt Romney. But outside, hard-right Republicans of the Freedom Caucus were still obsessing on hearings about hearings on Tuesday featuring testimony from Capitol Police officers about violent and racist attacks by Trump supporters on January 6th. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy blames Speaker Nancy Pelosi for the assault on the Capitol. At the same time, Congress was officiating the election of Joe Biden. Capitol Police needed reform. They need better training. Even though the Republican on the committee ranking, Rodney Davis, produced legislation she would never bring up for a hearing. So, yes, it does rest with them. All and the Georgia effects, January 6th should not have happened. Those Capitol Police officers should not have to go through what they did. This line was broken in the Kavanaugh debates, but no change was taken since then. In the six months that Nancy Pelosi played politics, the Senate... Not one, but two committees, bipartisan, looked at this. This has always been a partisan play. She picked Benny Thompson, who says it's all open except the speaker. You can't question her. The power rests there. That's why we bring it up, because that's where the facts take us. Yes, ma'am. And Georgia Republican Jody Heiss took the issue one step farther, demanding Pelosi be removed as speaker. Nancy Pelosi's authoritarian reign must come to an end. Enough is enough of what we've put up with here. She is destroying the House of Representatives with constantly putting forth unconstitutional changes. She is repeatedly putting forth type of changes in our rules and our system that prevents us from representing the people that we serve. Just today, we discover that she puts forth this draconian rule that says guests and our staff can be arrested for not wearing a mask. Are you kidding me? She continually blocks Republicans from putting forth input for legislation. She has put forth proxy voting, which we all believe strongly is unconstitutional and only consolidates her own power. 
She's put up metal t t detectors around here so that every member of Congress has to go through a metal detector to even get on the floor to vote. And the excuse is that we, members of the Republican Party, are dangerous to her and to the Democrats without a shred of evidence for any of that. Georgia Republican Jody Heiss of the right-wing Freedom Caucus today in front of the Capitol. Meanwhile, fueled by vaccinations and government aid, the United States economy grew at a solid 6.5% annual rate last quarter, and another sign the nation has achieved a sustained recovery from the pandemic recession. The total size of the economy has now surpassed its pre-pandemic level. But the good news isn't stopping some workers from demanding their money back. This week, the United Mine Workers of America brought their protests over sharp wage cuts to New York. More than 700 people bust in from Alabama, Ohio, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. They gathered outside of investment company BlackRock on Manhattan's East Side. Clark Adamitis has the story. Workers chant outside BlackRock offices in support of the UMWA strike. 1,100 miners from the United Mine Workers of America have been on strike for almost five months against Warrior Met Coal, the largest coal production company in Alabama. It produced over 6 million tons of coal in 2019. It's a company that produces coal to make steel, and BlackRock is its largest shareholder. Back in 2016, Warrior Met was bankrupt. That's when Alabama miners in Tuscaloosa County were given a pay cut and benefits were taken away. On April 1st of this year, the labor contract between the United Mine Workers and Warrior Met was set to expire. The union was seeking higher wages, better scheduling, and holiday time off. But the two groups could not agree on a contract. Um, so we're here to try and send a message to BlackRock that um, why don't you see if you can get your folks down in Alabama to reach a fair agreement and let these people go back to work. Phil Smith is the Director of Communications and Government Affairs for the United Mine Workers. Between five and 700 people here, maybe more. Uh, we've brought uh, seven busloads of people from Alabama, from Pennsylvania, from West Virginia, from Ohio. We're going to be putting pressure on everybody who's uh, affiliated with this company. Uh, the board of directors, the stockholders. Smith says that companies that invest in Warrior Met should be held accountable, and Larry Spencer agrees. Spencer is vice president of the West Alabama Labor Council. He's demanding a new contract from Warrior Met. We took a lot lesser contract than what we normally do to try to keep that company going, and now they don't want to pay the profits back that, that we earned that company. We rode up here on buses to tell you your investments need to be being put to use in these guys' salaries, in these guys' benefits, these guys that have earned you the profits that you're making from these coal mines. We are! We are! This is the longest strike in the history of Alabama labor, according to Cecil Roberts, president of the United Mine Workers of America. In the history of Alabama labor, I want these people right here to know something. There is no quit in the UMWA. We'll stay right there with you. 
you at the end, so you better make peace now. Not only have we rallied together, marched together, dodged trucks together, dodged scams together, we had the great honor of spending the night in the Tuscaloosa jail together. Family life in coal mining towns has been turned upside down. Hayden Wright is president of a local United Mine Workers Women's Unit. She shared her story on WBAI's Building Bridges this week. People have been crushed. We had a young man that was actually hit by a man bus, actually crashed into him. Now he's paralyzed. These are extremely dangerous working conditions. That's something that your family deals with every day as well. At home, you're picking up all the extra home duties. They can't. I mean, most of us as wives, we're the ones helping coach T-ball. We're the ones taking the kids to activities. President Cecil Roberts is demanding that the miners who created the wealth get their fair share of it. WBAI reached out to BlackRock, who declined to comment. As the strike approaches five months next week, the miners hope that companies like BlackRock, who fund Warrior Met, will support their movement. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York. And in related news, Alabama now has the highest COVID positivity rate in the United States and one of the lowest rates of uh, vaccination. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey has repeatedly pleaded with Alabamians to get their shots. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. When is a recovery not a recovery? Political economist Jack Rasmus says the recovery isn't a sure thing. He says it's a question of how you measure recovery and who benefits from the rising economy. It depends on recovery for, for whom. And also, I would say, depends on what indicators you're using and assumptions you're using. And it also depends upon whether COVID is truly put to bed. We still have 15 million people collecting unemployment benefits have dropped out of the labor force. Today, we still had 500,000 new unemployment claims for the past week alone. Actually, more than that, because many states have cut out the pandemic unemployment assistance. Certainly not over for those millions of workers who are still unemployed. And it doesn't look like that's dropping uh, to pre-pandemic levels. Now, if you want to say uh, it's over per GDP, you want to use GDP as your indicator. Well, it all depends if you're saying, okay, in December 2019, the level of the economy and GDP turns was so much. And now today we've uh, reached that same level. Therefore, it's, quote, over. That assumes that the economy would have stayed stagnant at 2019 and never grew in the interim. But if you assume the interim would have been some growth based on what was happening in 2019, then we haven't reached what economists call full employment of level of GDP. No, we haven't fully recovered yet. We've got a rebound going, no doubt, but that's mostly because of reopening the economy. But there are now signs beginning to emerge as the COVID relief package of last February is beginning to fade and dissipate. Signs are emerging that the growth rate of the last two quarters is beginning to slow down significantly, both in consumer spending and the business investment and in trade. Will we have a sustained recovery for the rest of the year, or will it be like last year with a rebound that uh, pretty much collapsed in the fourth quarter? Uh, that remains to be seen. If they don't get some significant further uh, fiscal stimulus, which it doesn't look like they're going to, 
this this infrastructure bill, you know, is uh, insufficient and, and it's not going to do anything quickly. Let me ask you about uh, then, that. Let me just put just to make yeah. a break, a natural break there. Uh, let me ask you about the infrastructure bill. One point two trillion dollars. Why isn't that going to have this effect of being a, um, a stimulus on the economy? Well, because one point two trillion isn't really one point two trillion. It's only five hundred billion of new money, you know, and they're uh, playing uh, shell games here, uh, taking money from COVID, which was already authorized to be spent, and they're taking money from uh, authorization of a transport bill that was already authorized to be spent, and they're counting that as one point two trillion. That's just continuation of money that's already spent. And you can't factor that into uh, net stimulus here. Really, it's only a $500 billion stimulus, and it won't take effect this year at all. The details need to be hammered out here. It's not a final bill in and of itself. So you won't see anything from that until 2022, if then, very much. Uh, and then, of course, $3.5 trillion, uh, the family relief bill requires uh, budget reconciliation, and that will never happen. What is the reconciliation yeah. bill, and why is it dead on arrival? Because it takes 50 senators plus the vice president of the press, 50 plus one. And you've got two blue dog senators, Manchin of West Virginia and Senator of Arizona, who uh, have already gone strongly on the record. They will not support budget reconciliation. So you can't get your 50 plus one. It's dead. We had a uh, protest the other day, a rally by uh, the United Mine Workers from Alabama and New York against BlackRock, which uh, owns a large segment of the company that, the workers feel they gave a $1 billion in givebacks to in order to survive the pandemic and survive a bankruptcy. I see uh, outbreaks of rank and file everywhere wanting to do something, but it doesn't coalesce because the policies of the leaders of the AFL-CIO are the policies of the Democratic Party. There's no effort to link them and to launch a real vigorous support for a nationwide let's get back what we gave back movement because it would embarrass the Democratic Party. BlackRock is indication of a real trend here. Private equity firms and so forth, shadow bankers we call them, taking over a lot of sectors of the economy. They've got their claws all over in all kinds of industries. They're just very rapacious. I don't see BlackRock giving in. Jack Rasmus, political economist, and in looming humanitarian disaster news, the Biden administration announced today it'll allow a nationwide ban on evictions to expire Saturday, arguing that its hands are tied after the Supreme Court signaled the moratorium would only be extended until the end of the month. The White House said Biden wanted to extend the federal eviction moratorium because of the highly contagious Delta variant of the coronavirus. Instead, Biden called on Congress to extend the eviction moratorium to protect such vulnerable renters and their families without delay. Democrats say they'll try to pass a bill as soon as possible and are urging Republicans not to block it. The moratorium was put in place last September by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. By the end of March, 6.4 million American households were behind on their rent. As of July 5th, roughly 3.6 million people in the U.S. said they face eviction in the next two months. And in New York City, the housing rights group Just Fix sent a letter last month to Judge Lawrence K. Marks, chief administrative judge of New York City Housing Court, denouncing the court's recent decision to block tenant HP actions filed virtually through Just Fix's website. The letter says the court's actions demonstrates a blatant disregard for the needs of most under-resourced New York City renters. A spokesperson for Just Fix New York is Vincent Tsai. 
basically an online tool to help tenants file an HB action. So this was developed actually before the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, we worked with the courts to create this tool to help people with that process. And during COVID, a lot of the restrictions or I guess requirements to filing an HP action were listed so that people could do it from their home. What's an HP action? Yeah, so HP action stands for um, housing card action. It's a way for tenants to sue their landlords for not doing repairs or for harassment. And so the purpose of this tool, this app, was to make it easier for people to do that from home? Yes, exactly. And what was your experience with this tool? This tool was great. We helped over 3,000 tenants file an HP action. The issue was the court all of a sudden decided to reinstate some of these requirements that used to be in place before COVID. So that included a filing fee and certain notarization requirements. How much um, is the filing so fee? The filing fee is $45. So you have to pay $45 to make a complaint about a condition in your apartment. Right, right. In addition, you have to go to court in person to file. So that's why our tool was no longer accessible. And why did they do this? Why did the courts decide to go back on a successful program for doing something you would think are somebody's right to do to keep their apartment in repair? They didn't really provide a concrete reason. They did state there was some rule that they had to follow, but because the state of emergency was listed in New York State, so that's why they went back. But there really is no real reason for them to go back. Our assumption is that they are preparing for the wave of eviction cases that are coming up once the eviction moratorium ends at the end of August. What connection would that be between HP actions and evictions? Because there's a huge backlog of eviction cases. There's also a lot of HP actions. The court has historically functioned in a way to serve a lot of these eviction cases. They have a lot of resources and courtrooms dedicated to eviction cases, whereas HP actions not so much for many reasons. But yeah, I think it's the prioritization of the landlords over, over the tenants. Is there any way around this? Is there, are you trying to maybe get legislation or do something along those lines? The Office of Court Administration, so they replied back to us, they said that they are working with legislators to remove some of these notarization requirements and filing fee requirements, but we're not really <laughs> sure how much they're doing on, on that end. But we are working with our partners. So in our letter, we wanted to have a meeting with the judges and the courts, along with the partners that we work with to come to some sort of solution where we could get this back for tenants to be able to use without all these requirements. Do you expect to have a win on that? It's pending. <laughs> we're, we're hoping. We just got a letter from the courts, I believe, like last week. So we're strategizing around what we can do as a next step. It sounds like they put up a artificial barrier to legitimate complaints in order to slow down the process. So, <clears throat> Yeah, that's right. Vincent Tsai is a spokesperson for Just Fix New York. And finally, restaurateur Danny Meyer will soon require diners to be fully vaccinated if they want to dine indoors at one of their full-service restaurants. The new policy goes into effect on September 7th. Along with requiring employees to be vaccinated, Union Square Hospitality Group will also require indoor diners at its full-service restaurants like Union Square Cafe, the, Mo the Modern, and Gramercy Tavern to show proof of vaccination. Meyer, who is also the founder of Shake Shack, said in a interview that a decision will come later on whether the mandate will also apply to the fast food chain. Mayor Bill de Blasio applauded Meyer's move in a press briefing Thursday, calling it a huge moment. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, July 29th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
Thanks for listening.